John chapter 7, 1 through 13. If you'll follow along uh, as I read. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, Thanks be to God. This passage in John chapter 7 um, is... And actually, extending all the way into John chapter 8 is all centered around one, one event, one of the festivals, uh, the pilgrimage festivals uh, that the Jews would take to Jerusalem. There would be three of those that would be done every year, and this is one of them. And it's mentioned in verse 2, the Feast of the Booths. And so it's a very fascinating time that extends all the way into chapter 8. Uh, It seems to be that Jesus is there for that feast of the Feast of of Booths. And so that's going to take up um, a lot of our time next week. Here, if you can kind of look at it a little bit, uh, if we look ahead a little bit, if chapter 7 and 8 are all centered around this one feast, I think we could kind of break that whole thing up, or at least in chapter 7, into uh, three different parts, kind of a pre-feast part, which is the part we read about in verse 13, and then there's a a mid-feast part, and I say mid-feast is because this feast would last seven days, and then there was a great celebration on the eighth day. Uh, There's a mid-feast part, notice it says in verse 14, says about the middle of the feast, Jesus did end up going to the temple in Jerusalem. So there's a a middle feast section that goes all the way to verse 36. And then there's a post feast section in verse 37. Notice it says on the last day of the feast, the great day. So this is that great day of celebration. So uh, we're today, we're just going to look at the pre-feast part. We'll look, Lord willing, next week at the rest of John chapter 7. As Jesus is in Jerusalem and there's much murmuring and discussion about who this Jesus is as he is in Jerusalem. But today we're just going to look at the first 13 verses. And I have this broken down into hunted, harassed, and hated. Hunted, harassed, and hated. He's hunted, we see in verse 1, that he's hunted by the Jews. 
After this, Jesus went up in Galilee. Uh, he went about in Galilee. He would not go up to Judea, go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. We've seen this a couple of times already. In John chapter 15, I believe in verse 16 and uh, 18, this was after he'd healed the man at the pool of um, uh, pool in Jerusalem. It says, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then verse 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here we're reminded, this is why Jesus is staying back in Galilee. He is not going down to Judea for this pilgrimage feast that they were supposed to be going to Jerusalem for. And that's because, as he says later, this is not my time, not my time. So he's being hunted by the Jews. And the word has already gone out, as we see later in John chapter 7, that it's well known among the people that they were wanting to kill Jesus. So he's hunted by the Jews here, we see in verse 1. And then next we're going to look at how he's harassed by his family. Jesus is harassed by his family. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit more time. Jesus is disbelieved by his own brothers and sisters. That's right. You're ahead of me. Jesus actually has brothers. Or we'd call them today more precisely half-brothers. We saw this at the end of John chapter 6. They said, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Remember Jesus was saying, I'm the bread who's come down from heaven. And they're like, well, wait a second. We mean you're the bread that came down from heaven. We know who you are. You're, you're just a human person like anyone else around here. We know who your father is. It's Joseph. We know who your mother is, Mary. In a parallel passage in some of the other gospels, like in Matthew chapter 13, uh, I believe I have it here on the slide to see. There's a similar kind of murmuring about Jesus and his claims about who he is. And they're not understanding this claim because he's, he's human like everybody else. He has a father and a mother. And as it says in Matthew, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? So Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, or Jude. Some places it's a variant. And he also had half-sisters. And are not all his sisters with us? His sisters are not named in the Gospels, as far as we know. Um, they asked, where did he get all of these things? Jesus actually had earthly brothers and, and sisters. And this is contrary to the teaching of, of the Catholic Church, which, which says that Mary, Mary was not just a, a, a virgin when Jesus was born. She was perpetually a virgin. She was that way for the rest of her life, continued to be a virgin throughout all of her life. And they try to explain these passages about Jesus having brothers and, and sisters is that, well, that word could probably mean cousins or, um, uh, or perhaps um, Jesus or Joseph was married before and had children from a previous marriage and um, those kinds of things. I remember when I was working in college, I was working at a Cracker Barrel and um, 
I was known as the preacher man in Cracker Barrel. Um, any guess why? <laughs> you know, um, so that was my reputation at the Cracker Barrel. So all of the atheists and doubters, and they would love to kind of trap me in the back corner by the cooler um, and ask me some questions. And then one was a, uh, one of the hostesses was a sweet uh, little uh, Catholic girl, probably high school age, and I had mentioned something about Jesus having brothers, and she was like, no, he didn't. And I was, oh, sure, it's right here. Look, and I showed her in the Bible. No, no that can't be true. Um, and I said, no, it's right, it's right there. This word, the word brothers here is referencing brothers. And she said, well, didn't Jesus say um, somewhere about his family members had come and said, we're outside as he was you know, in a crowded house. And, and didn't Jesus say, well, my brothers are those who, brothers and sisters in my family are those who hear the word of God and do it or seek the will of my father. And I said, yes, but Jesus is answering that because his actual family was outside. <laughs> and Jesus' point was not to dismiss his family, but to say, this is what happens when you become my disciple. You become a member of my family. You become my, my sibling. So, so, so desperate, unfortunately, is the, the Catholic Church to kind of protect a, a human invented doctrine out of their own imaginations that they're willing to look past uh, all of the scriptural evidence and twist it when in reality Jesus actually had brothers and sisters he actually had brothers and sisters and they are the ones who speak here at the beginning of uh, verse 3 context is it's the, the feast of the booths is at hand and more on that next week but this feast is at hand. And so the brothers were saying to him, hey, go up to Judea. They had witnessed what Jesus was doing in terms of his miraculous works and his teachings and the feeding of the 5,000s and the various healings. And they're saying, go up to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one uh, works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. You're doing all of these wonderful things. You need to go up. Show yourself to the world, they said. And it sounds really encouraging at first. Like they're like, wow, you've really got some skills and talents, Jesus. You need to go and make it known to more people. But John makes it really clear a little bit of the intent behind those words. Notice verse 5. This is the real meaning here. This is the real intent. Verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And the four there is, is giving the purpose clause. It's explaining why it is that they said those words. Now, it could be, it could be that maybe they were, uh, that they were really trying to encourage Jesus to go and get his name out there. Um, but Jesus is rebuking him because maybe that's not, he's like, that's not my point. This is not my time. It, it could be that. Um, I think perhaps another way of looking at it is that they're actually mocking him a little here. That his family didn't even believe him. And so th these, these words could be said in a very kind of mocking way. This is not just uh, a misunderstanding about Jesus' uh, ability. This is disbelief. He's actually being criticized by his family here, or at least his brother's. 
And a little bit of the uh, background to this, we could see in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 3, uh, there's one point where um, it says this on the slide. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They thought, they thought Jesus was dangerously crazy. So verse 5, and so I tend to see that, that aspect here of their words in verses 3 and 4. This is a little bit of sarcastic mocking of, of Jesus from his own family. And think about that. Jesus' half-brothers had a front row seat to the Son of God. They saw their older brother their entire life, and they didn't see it. They didn't recognize it when Jesus started to do these amazing things. You've heard the, the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. There's, uh, and I heard one person mention this or say this one time, and I, that always stuck with me. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, which breeds contempt. So just to think, just to think that Jesus actually had earthly brothers and they couldn't even see it. Which shows you a little bit about the, again, the blindness of the human heart. It also reminds us what is the theme in John's gospel, that there's no biological advantage to God's family in his kingdom. That even his brothers were unbelievers at this time. And that they too had to be born again, born from above, just like everybody else. They had to be given new eyes to see. They had to be given a new heart to recognize that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And because of this, Jesus' family did not understand either him or his ministry. And if Jesus himself was himself misunderstood and his ministry was misunderstood by his own family, how much more so is that true for us as believers? How many of you have family members? You don't have to show your hands, but how many of you have family members who are unbelievers? How many of you have family members... Um, or, or maybe they even profess to be Christian, uh, but have misunderstandings of the gospel. Perhaps they're involved in like a, the progressive or liberal forms of Christianity, if it can be. Or perhaps they're just like nominal Christians. They just claim to be a Christian because perhaps they vote a certain way or it's a kind of a cultural thing. Or maybe they're, they claim to be Christian and are involved in... Um, more like uh, prosperity gospel uh, type theology. So they could be b professing believers, but, but think you're a little off for having a, a serious commitment to who Jesus is and what, what Scripture teaches. Or maybe you have other unbelieving family members who... When conversations about your faith in Jesus Christ, it becomes kind of awkward. You experience that? 
know this. Jesus knows exactly what that awkwardness feels like. And that what happened to Jesus really ends up becoming a part of the daily experience of the Christian. John Calvin says this about this verse. He says, what happened to Jesus is a part of the Christian's experience. Quote, that the children of God suffer greater annoyance from their near relations than from strangers. That the children of God suffer greater annoyance from their near relations than from strangers. How many of you would say in your experience that that's true of you? I remember when I came home after my first semester, first year actually, uh, at a Christian college. And I grew up in a Christian home. And my father had passed away when I was much younger. And then when, he, when I was in high school and then um, we just kind of quit going to church in the aftermath of that. And then the, the Lord had um, brought me back uh, to himself in my first year of college at a secular university. And, and through strange working of events, I found myself in the same week. Um, becoming a Christian, not telling my mother about it, and then my mother calling a meeting with me and saying, I, I, I want you to transfer somewhere else and go to a different college, basically was kind of kicking me out of the house. So I become a Christian, and a day or two later, my mom says, I want you out of the house, and then the next morning, my friend of mine from high school calls, you got to come to this college, you got to come to this Christian college. And I was like, I didn't even know those existed. I didn't even know what it was. And the Lord had brought me to this Christian college, but it was the summer coming back where my commitment to Christ and gathering together with the people of God and reading the Bible and praying was really an annoyance to my family. How many of you experienced that? Jesus knows exactly what's that li what that's like. The children of God suffer greater annoyance from their near relations than from strangers. Than from strangers. Those who desire to um, serve God purely and faithfully can expect to be met with hostility from family members. The other lesson to keep in mind about that is that unbelieving family members, and I know... Many of us pray for unbelieving family members. We pray for other people's unbelieving family members. Just know this, unbelieving family members coming to Christ might take, a, might take some time. Sometimes it, sadly, unfortunately, never happens, but sometimes it takes a great deal of time before you see the fruit of that ministry to your family members. Think about this. Jesus is being mocked by his brothers here in verses 3 through 4. And John tells us that they were unbelievers. They're unconverted. They're unregenerate at this point. And we saw from the verse in Mark, uh, or uh, we saw from the verse earlier, excuse me, Matthew chapter 13, that, uh, that the disciples are named by the crowd. Or excuse me, Jesus' brothers are named by the crowd. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, some of those names should be a little bit familiar to you because two of them, we know at least two of them, perhaps all four of them, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, end up believing that Jesus is the Messiah. Very likely all of the siblings did and the sisters. 
the, the brothers and the sisters. But we know for a fact at least two of them were. James and Jude. Notice Acts chapter 1. Uh, as it's recording after Jesus has ascended into heaven. Uh, that Luke records for us in Acts chapter 1. What the early church did before the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost. They were all gathering together. They were meeting together. They were uh, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Okay, after the resurrection, now his brothers are there among the believers. The passage that we read earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it goes on to say, and that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's the other name, the Aramaic name for Peter, and he went to appear to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Sleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. That's, that's Jesus' brother. James ends up becoming the leader in the church of Jerusalem in Acts 15. When Paul becomes a Christian and is in converted over a period of time, he ends up making his way to go visit the apostles in Jerusalem. And it says in Galatians chapter one that he goes to, um, he visited none of the other apostles except for Peter and James, the Lord's brother, it says. So we know, believe that all of his brothers become Christians, but two of them become mentioned and become leaders in the church. As a matter of fact, they are also authors of New Testament letters. The book of James, that's Jesus's brother. The book of Jude, that's Jesus's brother. So think about the wonderful work that God might be doing, even in the midst of those difficult, painful relationships with family that are more, sometimes more strained than, than among strangers, that over time, the Lord might indeed do a work in their heart. So don't give up. Don't give up praying for your family members. Don't give up praying for their eyes to be opened to see the reality of who Jesus is. Amen? So Jesus is... Hunted by the Jews, he's harassed by his family. And lastly, he's hated by the world. Jesus' answer to them is, my time has not yet come. Um, now, earlier in his gospel, he talked about how my hour is not yet come. And those were usually connected to his going up to Jerusalem for his crucifixion. I think here it's, it's not that. It's a different word. Um, He's talking about that my timetable for going up there, I'm, I'm operating by God's plan here. And so my timetable to go up and do that is not, is not now. But his, what he says to them about their timetable is interesting. He goes, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. It's kind of a way of saying right now you're, you're, uh, you're not operating according to, to God's timetable, so to speak. And then he says, why? He says, you go ahead and go on up to Jerusalem. You go on up to the feast. Uh, I'm not going up. And he says, I'm not going up. And he's, it, you could add to that yet. Like the idea is that he, he does go up because we see later that he does, in fact, go up to the, to the uh, feast in Jerusalem. But it's what he says for why it is they should be able to go on up. 
Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world in John's gospel is used in, in a couple of ways. One, it talks about uh, basically the, all the inhabitants of the earth. It's used in that way in, in some places. But there's also a, a, a thread in how it's used in John's gospel to talk about the world as the, the system of, of evil that's against God and his purposes. Okay, so the worldliness It's interesting, isn't it, that these disciples are using it, the world, as the, all of the uh, inhabitants of the world, or at least a large crowd of people. Notice how they, uh, they mention the world here in verse 4. It says, no one works in secret. You should go on up to Jerusalem. Go and do your little tricks, perform your miracles and stuff like that, and you'll gain some more disciples because nobody who does these things uh, does it in secret. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Build your platform. Get your name out there. Get a podcast. And so Jesus is playing on that. You want, me to you want me to show myself to the greatest number of people. You want me to show myself to the world. I tell you what, the, the world cannot hate you but the world hates me. One, notice the indictment again of them in their unbelief. The world doesn't hate you because you're part of it. You're part of the worldliness that has blinders over the truth about who I am. The world in its, in its greed and its idolatry and its worship of self, it, it can't hate those who are a part of it. But it hates me. The world hates Jesus. And here's why. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Nothing stirs up the hatred of the world than to point out the ways in which it is dead set against God and his purposes. Nothing stirs up the most amount of wrath in an unbelieving world than to show them the ways in which they violate God and his holy character. The world hates me because I'm merely pointing out that its works are evil. Now this could become because of his, how, how is Jesus doing this? How, how does Jesus testify that its works are evil? Maybe he's just saying it. Maybe it's a part of his teaching. Um, maybe it's what he's said about the, the, the necessity of new birth and rebirth. Maybe it's because, as Jesus has hinted at a little bit, that his, his purpose of coming is to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And if a world is required, the only way a world could be saved is by the suffering of a Savior, you have to point out that its works are evil. And they'll hate you for it. They'll hate you for it. So Jesus says to them, go on up. Your, your life is not going to be in danger 
the worldliness down there in Jerusalem is no threat to you because you're one of them. But Jesus is saying, I operate according to a divine timetable and my timetable, uh, my time has not yet fully come. But you're in your worldliness, you're in your sin, you're in a hostility with God. And Jesus is hated because of what he testifies about the evil works of the world. And likewise, in the same way that Jesus had unbelieving brothers and had uh, to experience the hostility and harassment from his family, we would, we would too. In a similar way, as the world hates Jesus, it's going to hate you if you're faithful to him. This he explains even fuller later in this gospel in John chapter 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, he says, John 15 verse 19, if you were, the, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's what Jesus was saying about his brothers. The world doesn't hate you. They love you as, as, as its own. But because you, and again, he's here speaking to his disciples, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, one of the greatest challenges it's going to be to be a Christian in, in the world today is to be hated by the world. Let's take some comfort and assurance that our Savior was hated by the world too. The world hates me, it hates my Savior too. And I'd rather be on the side of my Savior. I have a friend in Him. So Jesus hunted and harassed by family and hated by the world. Friends, may we Know that this might be our fate too, that we might be hunted. We might be experienced harassment from family, unbelieving brothers and sisters. And we definitely be hated by the world. Let us keep our eyes fixed on our Savior Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we praise you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for your word that you have preserved for us, that you've written for us, for our encouragement and our instruction. And we thank you for this little episode in John's gospel, and we thank you for the deep truths that are there for us. We pray, God, that these words would uh, instill in us greater courage and resolve and commitment to seeking after you, even though the world might hate us and our family might um, chastise us. But we ask that you would give us the strength and the resolve and the conviction that we need to walk faithfully with Christ. We ask that you would do that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have placed within 
all those who trust in you as a seal and a deposit until the day that Christ returns. We pray this in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Friends, will you stand for our closing um, commissioning? Our doxology and our benediction today is now to Jesus Christ, the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. And also with you. Thank you.